0: If you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Genesis chapter 25. We're going to be in verses 19 through 34 this morning. Genesis 25, 19 through 34. God creates, chooses, and qualifies a people for himself. It's what we want to explore today in this passage. God creates, chooses, and qualifies a people for himself. You can follow along with me as I read. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version, just in case it sounds a little bit different from what you have in front of you. Genesis 25, 19. Now, these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she says, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. That word peaceful there, you might want to read as something like complete or whole, We won't spend a lot of time on this in the sermon, but there's a contrast being made between Esau, whose physicality is his distinguishing characteristic as opposed to Jacob, who's more of a whole or complete individual. But Jacob was a peaceful or a complete man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First send me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die, so, what if, so of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First swear to me, so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, help us now to see your hand at work in this passage, and not only to see your hand at work in the history Recorded here with the birth of Jacob and Esau, but to see how the work of your hand in this episode gives us further insight into into the way that you continue to work through redemptive history, even down to this very moment today. Help us to praise you for who you are and for what it is that you have done, and it's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. Genesis twenty-five nineteen through 34, the section that we just read is a little bit of a surprise in the way that the storyline of Genesis is playing out because in chapter 25, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 25, if you've got those nice convenient little headings in your Bible, you might have something like Abraham's death or Abraham dies. And so because we know that Abraham gave or fathered Isaac, we would expect that on Abraham's death, the attention then is going to immediately go to Isaac, who's the next in line. Isaac now receives all of the promises that were given to Abraham. They have been passed on to him so that the work that God began with Abraham, he's now going to do through Isaac as Abraham's descendants begin to spread and multiply. But we don't get that. In actuality, what we get is almost Isaac being skipped over, so to speak, in the storyline, at least in this first instance. More time and attention is given not to Isaac, Abraham's son, but to Jacob, Abraham's grandson. Isaac in many ways is a very minor character in the amount of time and space that's given to him in Genesis. After chapter 25, you have chapter 26, which is something of a lengthy chapter given totally over to the events in Isaac's life. But when you come back to chapter 27, Isaac is there. But again, the focus is back on Jacob and by extension Esau, so, here's what I am going to put out in front of us because this will be helpful not just for our, our time this morning but for future sermons as we go through and we look at what God is doing in detailing and recording the events of Jacob's life. We, we don't necessarily know or can't say why more time or attention is given to Isaac. Why does he get such just a very brief mention specifically in chapter 26, before all of the attention shifts to Jacob. We don't know why that is, but I think we could say we do have some observations to make about why Jacob receives the attention that he does. This is going to help us, especially in this passage this morning, because Jacob, in a very unique way, represents the nation, the future nation, of Israel. So, If you know anything about the way that the Genesis story is going to unfold, you know that Jacob is given his name at birth, but that later in his adult life, there's going to be a climactic episode where Jacob has an encounter, a confrontation with the Lord, and in that confrontation, the Lord changes Jacob's name to Israel. So, if you are given a new name, Israel, and Israel happens to be the name of the nation that you're a part of, you are going to to very closely identify yourself and your people with the man who gave our nation its name. It's Jacob who is the father of the 12 tribes. It's his sons who then begin to prosper and create the 12 tribes of Israel. At a later point in Genesis, it actually refers to Jacob's sons as the 12 tribes and Jacob as the father of the 12 tribes. Jacob, interestingly enough, actually experiences real exile. He, he has to leave the land. And he goes eastward out of the land, much in the same way that the nation of Israel will go through exile in its history, moving eastward back towards the land of Babylon. And there are other things that we could say, but in the end, I think what what happens with Jacob in the Genesis story is that when Israel would look back and when they would see Abraham and Isaac, they would see the fathers or the forefathers of our people. But when they looked at Jacob, they would see themselves. One of the reasons that that would happen is in this very text because we're told in the birth announcement that more than just the fact that Rebekah has two children in her womb, the Lord's oracle or pronouncement to her says that there are two nations, two peoples in your womb. Which means that right from the beginning, while we want to look at Jacob and Esau as individuals, we also want to consider how Jacob embodies or typifies the nation itself. So, if we look at Jacob and we say, okay, whatever we see in Jacob in some way provides a type or an illustration or an analogy to the nation of Israel, then you want to say, well, what God does with Jacob, He does in some way with the nation. So, three things that we're looking at today. As it concerns Jacob, God creates him, God chooses him, and God qualifies him. Because Jacob embodies the nation, we want to say, well, that then seems to be one of the points or the the, the main message that's getting across to the nation who would be reading this historical account. In the same way that Jacob, later Israel, was created, chosen, and qualified, that's what God has done for us. He's created us as His people. He's chosen us as his, as his special possession. He has qualified us to serve in a very unique way. And then we also want to consider that the work that God does in the Old Testament for His old covenant people is in some way preparatory or a foreshadow of what God does for His new covenant people as well, which would be us. So God creates a people for Himself. One of the things that stands out right away when you read, starting at verse 19 and following, is that Rebekah, who is Isaac's wife, is barren. We are two patriarchs in, Abraham and now Isaac and we are two for two with barren women. What are the odds? There is something even more unique, though, about Rebecca's barrenness, because while Abraham and Sarah were called after they were already married, Sarah's barrenness was already known, and God calls them from their homeland to come to this new land that He's going to give to them, Remember, when you go back and when you read, the reason that Isaac ends up with Rebekah is because there is a peculiar providence by which God Himself singles out, selects Rebekah to be put with Isaac. God, specifically, uniquely, dramatically even, put Rebecca with Isaac knowing full well before Rebecca knew and certainly before Isaac would know that Rebecca was barren this is not the way that you go about building many descendants if you want lots of children you don't go and you don't pick out the barren woman in the mix that's not how things are done And so Abraham prays, he intercedes on behalf of his wife so that she would conceive, and she does. And before we lose sight of this, by the way, the, the text tells us how old is Isaac when he and Rebecca marry? Forty. Did, was that a youngster that said forty? Yes? No? Just a youthful sounding voice maybe. Okay, I was going to say, if it's a kid, I'll give you a pack of M&Ms for that. But if it was an adult, forget it. I'm not going to give you anything. (laughs) Isaac is 40 years old when he marries Rebekah. At the time that his sons are born, how old is he? Sixty. So, doing the quick math, how long did Isaac wait and pray for descendants? Twenty years. It's awfully close to what we saw going on with Abraham. We're told in the beginning of the Abraham story that Abraham was 75 years old when God called him and brought him into the land of Canaan. Abraham uh, does not have Isaac through Sarah until he's 100. That's 25 years. Not only do both Abraham and Isaac have barren wives who are unable to conceive and give birth, they both have to go through a period of 20 to 25 years before that promise of descendants is fulfilled. Why does God do that? Well, I think in part, He does it here with Isaac and Rebekah for the same reason that He did it with Abraham and Sarah. He wants to make sure that they know with absolute certainty that you did not do this. I did this. Yes, I used you. Yes, I used human agency, but understand. If my promise is going to be fulfilled, I'm the one who's going to have to perform the very thing that I promised because you are unable to do it in your own strength. So, if God is going to have a people for Himself, if He's going to make something out of Abraham and his descendants, if He's going to create a people that He can call His own, He cannot put out a general advertisement and say, I'm taking auditions or I'll take resumes, let me know who wants to get in on this project. God has to do it Himself. So when Israel reads about this event, and she sees that Jacob, later who would become Israel, the bearer of the national name, came into existence by a special act of creation, Israel is going to say, well, that's how we got here. God did something unique when He created us, when He brought us into existence. And then something like that is at work in the New Testament as well. In John chapter 1, John is referring to those people who become children of God. And in John 1.13, John says that these children of God were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If God is going to create a people for Himself, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, how is it going to be done? He's going to have to do it. You understand the fact that you are here this morning, that in and of itself understood through the lens of Scripture, you are evidence of the fact that God is still doing this very thing. Edgewood is not here because we did something. Edgewood is here because God created this group of people. And when you begin to bore down and you look more closely at the details, you are not here as part of Edgewood because you did anything unique or special. You're here because God created you to be his child, his son or his daughter. One of the things that this ought to do it ought to bring a tremendous amount of comfort and security to us in terms of our relationship with the Lord. If all of this that we see around us right now in this moment, all the crazy, mixed-up, odd people that we can't figure out, and by the way, you're looking out, but other people are looking out looking at you, so you're one of the crazy You're one of the odd. You're one of the people that can't be figured out. If all of this is God's creation, then there needs to be a way in which we think and consider that this is something special. This is something unique that happens here. When a creation of God reassembles on Sunday morning to sing together and to listen to God's word spoken over them, Because were it not for the creative will and mind of God, we would not be here where we are this morning. And if God in His wisdom and in His goodness has created us for Himself, then we can know for certain that there is an affectionate quality that God shares with us. He does not just merely create us as an object but He creates us with love and affection to share with us. When you go through difficulties and trials, when you feel like the world is crashing down around you, you don't have to wonder whether or not God has abandoned you and handed you over to chaos. God created you. He does not create you to abandon you to chaos. He creates you... To put His glory on display, and that means He's going to continue to work in you and through you. You're His special creation. We are His special creation. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed, new things have come. God, through Jesus Christ, has made us into something that we were not. Just like with Rebecca, God must bring life out of death. Just like with Rebecca, God must call into existence that which does not exist. That's exactly what he did with you and with me when he brought us into life in Christ. We were dead and He made us alive. He did that, not us, and we ought to praise Him for it. Second, not only does God create a people for Himself, God chooses a people for Himself. You have here twins in the mother's womb who are thrashing about uh, let's see, where's where's the word that we're looking for? In verse 22, the children struggled together within her. That Hebrew word there is a word that's used elsewhere that our English translate as crush. So it's like the twins are crushing each other. They're going to blows within their mom. I don't know what it's like to carry a living being inside of me I understand that one is enough to make you feel uncomfortable. I have it on good authority. Two, even more so, and two that are battling each other, trying to crush one another, must be unbearable. And so Rebecca goes to the Lord. Isaac has prayed that she would conceive. She conceives not one but two. And now Rebecca must be thinking, thanks a lot, you jerk. So she goes to the Lord. Lord, what in the world is happening here? And the Lord says, gives clarity and insight into the situation. There are two peoples, two nations in your womb. This is bigger, in other words, than just the fact that you have two sons on the way. Your two sons represent two people groups. And it's going to be the younger and the nation that he represents, the nation that he embodies, that's the nation that will be mine. That's the people that I will call my own. Now in part, this kind of choosing has already been at work in Genesis. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is minding his own business in ancient Mesopotamia and God comes and calls Abraham to leave and to be part of something new that he is doing. I'm going to make something out of you, Abraham, I'm going to give you many descendants, I'm going to give you a land. God chooses to use Abraham. What about about Joe, his neighbor? Joe was an ancient Mesopotamian name, by the way, or Shamgar, whatever whatever their names were back then. Well, I don't know. All we do know is that God said, Abraham, come with me. And then later on, Abraham fathers two sons. He fathers Ishmael and he fathers Isaac. And God says, through Isaac your descendants will be named. Not through Ishmael and Isaac. Through Isaac, your descendants will be named. He's the child of promise. My people will be known as my work. I'm the one who's doing this. Therefore, it's Isaac, the miracle, promised child, not Ishmael, who is a child created by your own effort. And then here we are again, twins in the womb, they share the moment of conception, they share a womb, and they're going to share delivery by a matter of seconds, and God says it's going to be the younger rather than the older. So what do you do with this? What does Israel do with this if, as we've suggested, when she sees jacob she sees herself well obviously on the on the one hand immediately what she's going to do she's going to say look our namesake jacob who would become israel our namesake was a special creation and was specially chosen by god that's what god has done for us we are a special creation that god has chosen for himself they'll they'll make the connection they'll connect the dots the danger, though, is, is that they don't think beyond that unique act. In other words, when they revel, when they rejoice, when they celebrate the fact that they are un- a unique people created by God and chosen to be used by God, they can very easily fall into the trap in the mindset that God has chosen us just because we're cut above everyone else or that God intends to do nothing more in this choosing but to just shower us with blessings that we can enjoy while everyone else just kind of wallows away making the best of life on their own. Go back again to Abraham. Why does Abraham enter into this relationship with God. Why does God choose to use Abraham? Genesis 12 verse 3. God tells Abraham, "I'm going to call you out, I'm going to give you a name, I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless you and you be a blessing." Genesis 12:3, "In you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed." Why did God choose to bless Abraham? So that Abraham could just soak it up like a sponge and hoard it? Genesis chapter 22. After Abraham passes the test of faith by being willing to offer up his promised son Isaac, God affirms his obedience and says in Genesis 22:18, because you have done this, I will indeed greatly bless you, and in your seed, in your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed." Why does God choose to make Abraham a recipient of his blessings and his grace? Why? So that he can extend God's blessings to others. So here we are. We sit here as members of Edgewood Baptist Church or as members of the body of Christ affirming that we are here because we exist as a special creation that God has brought into existence. We once were dead, we're now alive. God did that. We express and we affirm the fact that God, in His wisdom and in His grace, has chosen to do something unique and special with us that He does not do with anyone else. But the question is, what is He choosing to do with us? He's choosing to do with us the same thing that He chose to do with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the nation of Israel, which is to be a vehicle, a delivery mechanism to bring His blessings to all the other people on the face of the earth. Hold your place here, and go to First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two. Verse 9. Peter says, But you are a chosen race. Pause right here for a second. Who is Peter writing to? I'm going to take it by the, the general mumbling that like two or three different but correct answers were given. So some of you may have said, Peter is writing to Christians. That's correct. Or some of you may have said, Peter's writing to the church, which is also correct. P- Peter is writing to new covenant members of the people of God, also correct. That's, that's who Peter is writing to. And Peter says in nine, to Christians that you are a chosen race. Where does Peter get the idea? that God's people in the New Testament are a chosen race. He gets it from the Old Testament. He gets it from all of the statements that God makes to the patriarchs and to the nation that they are chosen uniquely by Him to be in a special relationship with Him, to accomplish a special purpose. And Peter says, well, we can take that same Old Testament language and we can bring it over here and apply that to the church because what God was doing in the Old Testament with Jacob and Israel is what God is doing now with Christians and the church. They are, we are, this new chosen race of people, albeit not a race by ethnicity, but a race, a spiritual race. So, Peter says, 2.9, 2 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You could, you could put a period right there, and that sentence would make perfect sense as it stands. Why, though, does Peter not put a period there? What does he say after that? Why are you a chosen race? Why is Edgewood part of a royal priesthood? What does Peter say? So that you can own or shame those who are not part of the chosen people? So that you can sit fat and happy with all the blessings that God has given you? No. God created us and chose us to be a unique and special people, Peter says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You exist Because God created and chose you to be one of His, not so that you could say, look at me, the chosen one, but so that you could say, look at what God has done. Look at how God brings life from the dead. Look at how God takes people who are wallowing in darkness and sin, and he brings them into his glorious light. Look at how God takes people who are undeserving of his grace and mercy, who have no mercy to their name, and yet God showers them with his grace and mercy. Look at what God has done. That's why we are here on Sunday morning. There is no greater task. There is no greater privilege that that any church could have than to say we exist to make God look good. We exist in order to proclaim in song In speech, in sharing, in our thinking, in our life together, we exist to say something to ourselves and to the watching world around us about the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into light. That's why we're here. Parents, that's why... If you have come to know the excellencies of God in Jesus Christ, that's why you have the children that you have. You have those children because you have, whether you like it or not, and whether they like it or not, you have a captive little platoon that you get to impress with the glory and the grace of God. You get to do that. Grandparents, that's why you have grandchildren. So that you have an opportunity to show them and clue them in to the greatness of the God who created this world, who created them, and who does amazingly miraculous things. People, that is why you have the co-workers that you have and the neighbors that you have. So that in your conduct, in your speech, in everything that you do, you are displaying the excellences of God made known and revealed in the work of Jesus Christ and His transforming power through the Holy Spirit. There is no greater task, there is no greater calling that any of us could have, than to have that be our one mission in life. So God creates, God chooses a people for himself. God qualifies a people for himself. Full disclosure up front, this is sort of a, I wrestled with this point. What in the world do you say about this point, the the actual selling of the birthright? So we're actually going to come through this sort of in the back door, so to speak. So bear with me. Be patient for a minute. Remember, when Rebekah receives a word from the Lord, the Lord says, it's not just simply that you have twins, that you have two sons, but that you have two nations in your womb. Therefore, when Israel is reading her history, reading about her forefathers, reading and identifying with Jacob in a very unique way, they're also going to look at Esau, and they're going to consider that here we have a comparison and a, con- and a contrast between those who are the people of God and those who are not the people of God. Do you get that? So, that's, we get that clued into us, not just from the word that the Lord speaks to Rebekah, but because when Esau comes to Jacob and says, give me some of that red stuff, they say, ah, because of that, he was called Edom. Edom in the Old Testament is one of the nations who neighbor on Israel's land. There was constant hostility and friction between Israel and Edom in the Old Testament. So, here's what we're doing then. In the same way that we can look at Jacob and say, what God does here with Jacob, this special creation and choosing him for a special purpose and mission... That's what God does for His people in the Old Testament. That's what God does for His New Testament people as well. We now want to look and say, okay, this contrast between the chosen people and those people who do not belong to God, what are we to gain or what are we to glean from this? A couple things worth pointing out here. We often read this paragraph, verses 27 through 34, and we describe it or we sum it up as Jacob tricking Esau out of his birthright or Jacob stealing his brother's birthright. But that is not the perspective that we're given by the author of the story. The focus in 27 through 34 is not first and foremost on Jacob, it's actually on Esau. And we know that because of two basic reasons. One, Esau is the one who drives the action in this story. If you think of this as a play, as a drama, right? Here's Jacob sitting on the stage, he's minding his own business, working over a pot of stew. Enter stage right or stage left or whatever it is, I don't know. Here comes Esau and it's Esau that begins the action by saying to Jacob, give me some of that stew. Esau initiates the action. The scene ends when Esau exits the stage. So he initiates the action, he drives the action, and when Esau leaves, the story ends. And then the second one, not only is Esau the lead character in this scene, but the, the, what tips us off most is that the narrator of this story takes the unusual approach of actually telling us what we are to conclude from this episode. So he says at the very end of verse 34 that after Esau took and ate and drank and stood up and went on his way, the narrator does not say, thus Jacob tricked Esau. No, 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 no. Thus Esau despised his birthright. What does that mean for Esau to despise his birthright? The language is somewhat figurative. I don't think that it means that Esau literally hates the idea that as the oldest, he's entitled to certain blessings, right? I don't think that's what's being said. Rather, I think the point is, Esau despises, he thinks lightly. He does not consider the wealth or the honor that exists in having this special birthright and all of the blessings that come with it. He thinks lightly of it. How do we know that he thinks lightly of his birthright? Because he's willing to sell it for a bowl of soup. the natural order, the natural position that he has is that what Abraham had that he passed down to my dad Isaac, I stand first in line to have that passed down to me. And he looks at all of that blessing, both material and immaterial, and he says, you know what? Because I'm hungry right now, I'd rather have soup. He'd rather have a bowl of something to eat, something he doesn't even know what it is. It's just red stuff to him. He'd rather have some unknown piece of food that he can eat there in the moment than eternal reward. Do you get that? Do you see what Esau is doing? So, when Israel looks and says, Jacob is the one that we identify with, he is the embodiment of God's people, and Esau represents in some way the embodiment of those people who are not enjoying the promises of God, what are they to conclude when they look at the way that Esau conducts himself? They look at Esau thinking lightly of the blessings of God and they say, we don't want to be like that. That's not how God's people are supposed to act. You say whatever you want about Jacob and whether or not he took advantage of his brother. By the way, I think he did. Set that aside. You can say whatever you want about Jacob. We'll have plenty of opportunities to look at all the warts and flaws and everything that Jacob has. He's no no pristine saint. But at the very least, what you can say about Jacob in this episode is that Jacob at least recognized the value of the birthright, whereas Esau didn't care for it. Turn to Hebrews, chapter 12. Follow with me starting at verse 14, the author of Hebrews says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that, there, that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. Here it is, verse 16. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. You see what the New Testament does with this episode in Genesis? It says, look at Esau. Don't be like him. Listen, chosen race. Listen, special people of God. God has created you and given you special, unique privileges and blessings. Don't think lightly about what God has given you. Don't cash it in for temporal comforts and ease, and physical pleasure. It's not worth it. Don't trade your spiritual birthright. Don't trade the blessings of communion with God for a woman. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Don't trade Your spiritual birthright, the blessings of God for a man. It's not worth it. Don't trade it for a career. Don't trade it for a degree. Don't trade it for a reputation. That the world around you is going to say, now we can accept you and now we think that you're okay. Don't do those things. You may get momentary relief and comfort from whatever kind of hunger pain you're experiencing. That crave for affection or that crave for approval or a sense of accomplishment, you may get it in the moment, but you're going to find yourself, if you're not careful, like Esau, who had his belly filled, but at the end of the day, ended up empty-handed when it mattered most. God's people are those who enter into covenant relationship with Him and they live the rest of their lives having their understanding broadened and their eyes open to see how rich they are in Christ Jesus. And how foolish it is to try to trade Christ and His blessings and His reward for anything else that this world would have to offer you. Shiny, shiny, Attractive, tempting things, but they don't mean anything. You have everything already. You don't need anything else. And so part of what we have to understand and recognize is that there will be through this life a constant tension that exists between God's special chosen people and those who are outside of those covenant blessings. One in which we see and value things that the rest of the world does not see and does not value. And they will look at the things that we value and they will think, you're a fool. But we say over and over again, we are not foolish for building and basing and hoping everything on the promises of God in Jesus Christ. We will reap the benefit and the reward. Maybe not now. Maybe not tomorrow. Maybe not 10, 20, 50 years from now. But we will reap. We will get our reward. don't throw it away. If God has created and chosen this body here at Edgewood, He has created and chosen us for no small thing. One of the things that He has created and chosen us for is to give us the riches of His grace. Paul says in Ephesians that when everything is finally revealed and everything is summed up, that for the ages of to come, God is going to be demonstrating and revealing the eternal riches that He had in store for those who were in Christ. We can't even comprehend that. For as long as eternity is, that's how long we will be seeing and enjoying the riches in Christ Jesus. You want to trade that for a job? You want to trade that for a date? So take up songs like Be Thou My Vision and sing to yourself or sing to your family whether they like it or not or sing to each other riches I heed not nor man's empty praise thou mine inheritance now and always let's pray father we praise you because of your mercy and your kindness that has been made available to us in jesus christ we were a people who did not know your mercy but you gave it to us you have created us by the regenerating work of your Holy Spirit. You have chosen to call us by your name to be your special people, to proclaim your excellencies in this, your creation. And you are qualifying, you are conditioning and, and sanctifying us in such a way that the things of this world are growing increasingly dim compared to the light and the glory that is ours with you for eternity. I pray that you would make that an ever-increasing reality for each and every heart and mind here in the sanctuary this morning. And that, Father, if there is anyone here who does not know what it means to be part of your chosen people, that they would crave to have that kind of knowledge that comes through faith, that they would willingly pay whatever price, that they would give whatever cost for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. We thank you for all that you've done for us, and it's in the name of Christ Jesus, our risen Lord and Savior, that we pray. Amen. Andy will close us with a uh, a brief song. At the conclusion of the service, I'll be down front. If anyone wants to speak about anything that's been covered in the message here or of anything else of another subject, feel free to come down. God
1: is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good too. I praise his name. I praise his You're dismissed.